Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. We are using the Leib Shalom Machdor. We are on page 13. We're going to look at the Uvachim paragraphs, okay, which are... Um, it's, it, this is one of those sleeping giants, okay? I'm saying that because um, the um, this is a very it's a liturgical poem, and I will show you in the course is pretty very soon why I like it's got to be considered a poem. But the interesting thing about this one is, as opposed to other PU team, as far as I know. This is the only additional poem that that is found in every single Amidah of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, from Mariv on Rosh Hashanah all the way through in the Elah at the end of Yom Kippur. It is found in both the quiet Amidah and the repeated Amidah. It is, in fact, woven into the text of the third blessing of the Amidah, right? The one that, you know, the Kedusha. Okay, it is part of the text. And that is very unusual. Um, and if it's one of these things, you know, you, you see it all the time. You said, oh no, here we go again. I just said Uvachim, right? And, and then you say it again. I just said that. Why am I saying it again? Okay, well, because it's part of the structure of the prayer. Most of the PU team, as you probably have noted over the years, I hope you have, most of the PU team are there in the repetition. They're not always there in the quiet Amida. But this guy's there all the time. And uh, I want to explain that before we'll we'll read the brief. The reason why I wanted to use the Lev Shalem is because the commentaries on the page are helpful. Well, not all the time. We're not going to use them all the time, but very often they're helpful. The comment on page 13 in the Hebrew side uh, comes, as you see from the uh, uh, parenthesis at the bottom, it's from Reuben Hammer's uh, Entering the High Holidays. And Reuben Hammer is an old friend of blessed memory, and he has a wonderful author and a creative uh, 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 scholar of, of liturgy, and all kinds of other things. A wonderful man. One Allah Shalom. So we'll read that in a second. But it turns out <clears throat> that this um the the addition of this poem to the structure of the third blessing in a permanent way for the high holidays is a result of I think a compromise. Uh in the Mishnah, Mishnah Rosh Hashanah, chapter four, verse five, uh, uh Mishnah five. We read that there's a debate between uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri and Rabbi Akiva. These are two Tanaim, two great sages who live, say, around a hundred of the common era. I know you've heard of Rabbi Akiva, but Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri is not as well known. Okay. And they have a dispute over where to put uh, a blessing regarding God's kingship. Okay, so Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri says 
we allude to God's kingship in the third blessing of the Amidah. All right. And the, and he's talking there about the, the, actually they're talking about the Amidah of Musaf, what became the Amidah of Musaf, because it has all those verses. Remember in Musaf, Malchuyot, the kingship, uh, Zichronot, the remembrance, and Shofarot, the Shofar sounding the Shofar, right? There's 10 passages from the Bible in each one of them. So we're talking about that structure. It's interesting here, it does not say Musaf in the mission. It sounds as if it was to be done in all the Amidas, but it's not clear. Anyway, so Rabban Yochanan ben Nuri says, you say that along with Ha'el HaKadosh, the third, the conclusion of the, th- you know, where you say Kadosh, 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 and all that stuff, and you end Ha'el HaKadosh, who is the, the, the holy God, the sacred God. Okay, that's what he says, it goes there. And that's the reference to the kingship. Uh, Rabbi Akiva disagrees because he says, well, then you, and you're not supposed to, you're not blowing the shofar, which Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri agrees, but then you're not going to blow the shofar for the Malchiot verses. And he says, no. He says, the Malchiot blessing, the reference to kingship goes in the first of the three intermediate blessings of the Amidah. Okay. Each, there are three intermediate blessings. Which first is what's called the Kedushat Hayom, the sanctification of the day. Okay, where it refers to Yom Hazikaron, right? Uh, it's like the same thing you have on the holidays, right? That blessing, except in the, on the holidays and on Shabbat, that's the only one. On Rosh Hashanah Musaf, you have three blessings in the middle. So he says you go to that one, not the third blessing. So that way you blow the shofar. Okay, and you blow the shofar the same way you blow the shofar at the zichronot, same way you blow the shofar at the shofarot. I assume you know what I'm talking about, right? Think about the musaf, right, where we blow shofar all these different times. Okay, anyhow, so the law, as it turns out, according to the the use of the of that particular passage, the Malchiyot passage, the tradition follows Rabbi Akiva. Okay, and that's what we do. We say that along with the blessing of the sanctification of the day, which is the fourth blessing in the Amidah. Okay. Remember all the, all the holy days have a blessing of sanctification of the day. What is it on Shabbat? Mekadesh HaShabbat, God who sanctifies the Shabbat. Was it on holidays? Mekadesh Yisrael Vahazmanim, right? And what is it on Russia? Melech, Alkol Haaretz, right? Okay, all right, so there it says Melech, Alkol Haaretz, Mekadesh Yisrael, Karon. So you have the two things, the kingship, Melech, and the sanctification of the day. That's Rabbi Akiva. However, however, the power of Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri's tradition was felt to be so significant that they added in this poem with its emphasis on God's kingship and with other themes that actually are a good good lead-in to the whole liturgy of the high holidays, they put it in the third Amidah, the, the third blessing, and they actually changed the wording of the final blessing. Because yeah. This blessing where we say, 
Baruch Atah Hashem, HaMelech HaKadosh. HaMelech HaKadosh. The sacred king, not HaEl HaKadosh. During the year, right? El HaKadosh. During the 10 days of penitence, what do we say? Melech. A change in the third blessing. All right. And that all is part of this notion that we want to emphasize God's kingship in that blessing as when we sanctify God. Okay. When we sanctify God's name, not the holiday. That's the next one. So this is a biggie. That's the whole point. That blessing, the first three and the last three blessings are the ones normally that we don't change a lot in, right? There, and, and the, the changes that take place on the daily prayer, the Shabbat prayer, the holiday prayers are all in the middle. So this is huge. And that's why it's repeated in all of the Amidah. Okay. So now, and guess what? I never knew that before. I mean, I knew it was repeated, but I didn't know why. I mean, it was obviously a very impressive piece. So now I know I want to thank you guys because it's because of you that I learned this. So right away, I have to give you gratitude. I told you at the outset, you're a bunch of very smart people. You see what you taught me already. So thank you very (laughs) much. I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to learn. Okay. Now, um, Having said that, and by the way, the other thing I want to mention, we'll, we'll discuss this too, is within this one blessing, this one prayer, you actually find a pattern that is dominant throughout much of the liturgy, a pattern, a movement from one theme to the next that is dominant. And those of us who are familiar with other pieces of the prayers not just on the high holidays. So keep your eyes and ears open, put on your thinking caps, and see if you can see if you figure out what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. Will somebody please read? It's a small print, I know. Hopefully uh, you have on your glasses. I see you do, those who happen to need them. Um, read, somebody please read that paragraph on the upper uh, right-hand side of page 13, the Hebrew language side, where it says, Uvachem, these three paragraphs. May I have a volunteer? I'll read it, Joel. Okay. I got it. Thank you. These, these three paragraphs, these three paragraphs, which are introduced by the same word, Uvachem, okay. are ascribed by many scholars to the second or third century and may constitute the earliest poetic additions to the High Holy Day Amidah. Okay. And the, the language... Am I being heard okay? Yeah, yeah you broke... There's a feedback. Okay, now you're okay, yes. Okay, go okay. ahead. Continue. Stages of redemption are described in the series of prayers. The first paragraph implores God to cause the entire world to live with reverence for God. The next paragraph discusses not the universal, but the particular, the return of the people Israel to its land and specifically to Jerusalem and the kingship of David. The third paragraph describes the rejoicing that will come to the righteous, quote, 
when you remove the tyranny of arrogance from the earth, close quote, and God will rule alone over the entire world from Zion and Jerusalem. Okay, very good. All right. So now, notice the the movement in themes. It starts with God, and remember, Melech, right? Why is God Melech HaOlam? Why, why is that so significant on Rosh Hashanah? That God is king of the world. Because it's the birthday of the world. What? Because it's the birthday of the world. Exactly, because Hayom Harat Olam. Rosh Hashanah is the day the world was created. Exactly. Now, that's a rabbinic concept. But that's exactly right. So it's most appropriate that the kingship be really powerfully articulated. That's one reason. All right. So the first one then talks about God as the creator of the whole world. And we will see, and, uh, and, and all the nation, all the people will come to recognize that. Now that theme we know from another very powerful prayer. It's not part of the Amida, but it's the second paragraph of two paragraphs with which we end our services every day. The Aleinu. Aleinu. Paragraph of the Aleinu, right? Second paragraph, what do we ask for? All the nation, there'll be no more idolatry, and everybody will come to recognize and worship God as king of the universe. Okay? All right, so that's not a that's not a theme that's only on the high holidays. Right? That's a powerful, you know, futuristic theme. Okay. And Elenu comes from Rosh Hashanah. Exactly. Thank you. Was that Norm? Yes. Correct. It originally it originally was part of the Rosh the Malchiot passages, right? It's the first thing of the Malchiot passages. Correct. Very very good. Yes, indeed. Okay. So now, and then the secular, the second rather, the second theme, the second Uvachim, deals with whom. And what? With the people, right? Right. And then the third theme, that's the, well, it's the second part of the second paragraph deals with what? Olam Haba? No, well, yes, but there's a specific aspect of it that's- Our national redemption. Right, Uh, well, specifically, David, right, redemption, right? Redemption. So you have Creation, covenanting, right? The people and redemption of the people. Yeah. What does that sound like? Why, Alan, I did. Somebody got something. Creation. Alan, something's wrong. Something's wrong with your audio. Okay. I'll try it again. Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Okay. You're dealing with creation, revelation, and redemption, which are the three three themes that you have uh, on the Shabbat Amidah, dealing with that. It's, you know, the, you have the first three and the last three the same, but it's by Hulu Friday night, and it's uh, Bishamu on Shabbat, and then it's uh, uh, the Menucha, yes. the emphasis. On- right, exactly. And you also have that within the daily structure of Shacharit. What's the first blessing before the Shema? Yotzer, right? It's Yotzer Or. 
creator. The second blessing is the choice choosing of the people through Torah, right? Mm-hmm. And the third blessing after the Shema is Ga'al, Ga'al Yisrael. Yisrael. You see the theme? Now think about Birkat Hamazon. What's the first blessing in Birkat Hamazon? <coughs> what does God feed? Whom does God feed? Everybody. It's an it's Everyone, a yes. prayer for God feeding the world. And what's the second theme? Uh, no, that's the third theme. That's the third one? Right. The Al-Hakol, the, the land, the people in the land, right? Ah, yes. Specific. And then the third one is which is, of course, referring to the, the, the Messianic era. So that same kind of movement, they're not all identical. They're subtle nuances. But from the particular to the, to the, from, sorry, from the universal to the particular, then specifically focusing on some expression of the Messianic era is a pattern that you can find throughout the liturgy. Karen. Did we get to the third paragraph? That's what you're talking oh, yeah, about? We'll get there. Uh, when you remove the tyranny of arrogance. Yes. Talk about yeah, that. Hold on. We'll, we'll talk about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll get there. Just a second. Yes. Okay. So the second now. Okay. Let's look at the third paragraph. All right. Yes. So the third paragraph begins by talking. We haven't read the prayer yet, right? All right. So it's probably times. So anyway, the third paragraph, you, as you see, focuses on the righteous. Okay. Now the point is this. In that paragraph, you know, you see basically that the righteous are rejoicing and evil is removed. Okay. All right. Now, who, why is that mentioned here? The rejoicing of the righteous, evil removed. What has happened? What's, what, who makes that decision? Hashem. It was Rosh Hashanah. God who is sitting in judgment on Rosh Hashanah. God sits in judgment. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now skip down to the bottom of the page. Okay. Because you'll see the final paragraph, which leads into the, the blessing itself, which I'll talk about a little bit in a moment. It has within it a passage it says kakatuv as it is written vayigba hashem tsvaot bamishpat vaela kadosh nikdash bitzdaka god will be uh, uh uh elevated right will be uh, um, uh, exalted right through judgment and he will be sanctified in righteousness okay so the whole notion here is that that alludes to god as judge the righteous are rewarded, if you will, and evil is done away. And you find the same, that theme, of course, right in the middle of the weekday Amidah, where we talk about God restoring judges in Eretz Yisrael, the punishment of the wicked, and the exaltation, the lifting up of the righteous. Okay. So these themes, that, that particular theme, which exists elsewhere in the liturgy, 
Of course, that becomes central on Rosh Hashanah because ultimately the tradition views God as judge. Okay. And at that point then that this, so that, but that's also messianic. That's also what's, what will happen. Hopefully, right? Speedily in our day, as we say. Yes. All right. But then it concludes the final part of that third paragraph. You will rule alone on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, as it is said, right? Which is, of course, the third line of the, of the Kedusha that we say all the time. Right? Then we lead into the final concluding paragraph. Okay. So those are the three themes. But my point here is, what's amazing is it encapsulates, it it is, I get a sense that one of the reasons why this stuck the way it did, it's because it's so all-encompassing. It brings together all of these central themes that permeate the liturgy and actually shape, in a certain sense, traditional Jewish thinking. Right? That, I mean, that, you think creation, revelation, covenant, redemption, all of these things. You have a, you have even here, you have even included, you know, a reference to, to the, no. Well, I'm going to go into details in just a second. I don't want to get into that. All right. Okay. Any comments, questions, observations? Karen. I want you to talk about the arrogance of the earth. Okay, in other words, what it's saying here, it's very interesting. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't speak about um, individual. It doesn't talk about people. It talks about evil, evil, and the the uh, kingdom of evil. Okay, like uh, the, the, the evil, the evil empire. Okay, to use Star Wars terms. So mm-hmm. it's not talking about specific, that's really interesting. So because, that's all the non-believers are arrogant thinking they don't need God? Oh, no, it doesn't say that. Ah. It, it says evil. It, that Here it doesn't refer to that at all. No. Um, but the the notion that, no, the first, the first paragraph, the first paragraph speaks of the nations of the world turning to God, but there's nothing condemning over there. That's really interesting. They're not being condemned. The beginning, the very beginning. So let's now go back. Let's look at the poem itself and and look at these various elements of it. Okay, let's go back to the first part. Somebody please read. Uh, you know, let re, let's read the English translation because not everybody is fluent in the Hebrew. And then I'll stick my nose into the Hebrew and try to draw some stuff out. Okay. So the first one, Uvachain. Uvachain means and therefore. It's based upon what previous, what the, what the, what the, what the, what the, I mean, said earlier, talking about God, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, because of that, Alkain. All right. Somebody. Adonai, our God, instill your awe in all you have made and fear of you in all you have created so that all you have fashioned revered. <laughs> All you have created bow in recognition and all be bound together, carrying out your will wholeheartedly. For we know that true sovereignty is yours. Power and strength are in your hands 
and your name is to be revered beyond any of your creations. Right. Okay. So all, all you have created are going to bow in recognition and be bonded to God. It's really interesting. Does that include the animals? And you know, you know, think about it. it doesn't yes, say all we would include in every, every organism. It sounds like it. Yes. Now the rabbis, however, sometimes use the word briot, meaning creatures, to refer to people. Okay. To refer to people. And so I'm, I'm not sure that we, I, I, we're not, it's not clear here. On the one hand, you could say that even the animals will be nice. Okay. Now the point is, if you want to think messianically, and follow Isaiah chapter 11, which has a very, a very powerful and well-known picture of what it's like when the Davidic kingdom will be reestablished at the end of days. Yeah. What do we know about the animals at that point in time? Do you remember, anybody remember what it says? No. It's peace. They right. lie down the in peace, the lion and the lamb. And the bear will eat grass, right? The child will play over the nest of a poisonous snake. And everything is going to be fine. We're going to go back to Ghanaian, right? We'll all be vegan, right? Because nobody's eating meat. The lion not eating meat. Can you imagine the lion grazing? Can you imagine? Think about Africa, right? With all the, the wildebeests and the whatever, all the, and the, and the deers and the antelopes on the big veldt, right? The big field there. And there was the lion walking among them, just eating the same stuff. That's what it says at the end of the creation in Genesis chapter one. Remember, the world was created vegan. So the messianic era, there is a stream within the, Within the within our messianic thinking says we're all going to go back and become vegan again. So that that's what I'm thinking. We also know on the high holidays there is a reference to animals needing to make repentance. Anybody know? Snake. Where, where do we read the that animals along with people repent? It have to do with the snake with Adam and Chava? Nope. The thought. The snake never repented, as far as I know. <laughs> is it something in the book of Daniel that's... No. When I tell you, you're going to go, oh, yeah. Maftir Yonah. Oh. It says they put sackcloth and ashes on the animals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they repented also. So, So animals can repent, <laughs> right? I don't have it. I'm not sure that this had that in mind. I don't know. Although I do know that that actually Maftir Yonah was associated with uh, the high holidays chronologically, even before um, the the Torah reading for Yom Kippur afternoon. It's a very old association. It makes sense because, you know, repentance, that's the whole idea there. Anyhow, yeah, but so I'm not sure if the create creation, all creation refers to even non-humans or just humans. So I'm going to not going to force that thing. 
But the point is, everybody is going to come to recognize God. All right. And that's the same thing as the Alenu. Yes. And I know Karen has a very good question. And I'm going to answer that question when you, after you ask it. Go ahead. I'm still with the arrogance. Yes. The reason I'm asking is because it seems like arrogance is above, right? Arrogant. An arrogant person thinks they are better than another. Ah. So I'm wondering if the arrogance of the people of the earth, if you will, will gone because they'll all realize there is only one. That's a very good point. Uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that. The word that's used here is zadon. Okay. Well, in the English, it's arrogance. So what can I say? English, it's arrogance, right? But it means an, an arrogance that that is represented in evil activity. Okay. Well, okay. Zadon, zadon means when you do something intentionally, right? If you do something wrong, focused. He says you know willingly and knowingly you do something bad. Okay. And That's even reality. though God doesn't want you to do it. Right. So the heck with him. I'll do it anyway. Exactly. Right. Thanks. That's that's the arrogance that this now is. Now I could put that word away. Thank you. Yeah. Right. That's what that that's what that's talking about. It's where the English it's hard, you know, to when you translate. I like generally the, the translation of of this better than the same shallow, because it tends to be more literal captures the real words in the Hebrew, Sim Shalom tends to try to make the thought more contemporary by moving away from the liter- more literal things. And sometimes I think it loses the impact of the, the literal meaning. And we have the notes here to explain as well. Anyway, yes, yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so. The, all right, getting back to the, the beginning here. Okay, first par- the first, the, the first paragraph. All right, so very interesting here. Now this, we're going to see here why this is a poem. Okay, why isn't this just a, a narrative type of a thing? All right, so here's the thing. It says the first line, instill awe in all you have made and fear of you in all you have created. Okay. So it's a structure where it, the, 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 the statement is in two clauses, right? Which basically relate to the same theme, the same concept. Mm-hmm. That is the same as you have as I, in the Aleinu. Aleinu l'shabeach l'adon hakol l'atet g'dula l'yotzer b'reshit. Right? I will, we will, uh, uh, exalt God. And we will give uh, great, uh, pronoun, pr- pr- declare greatness uh, to the Creator. Okay, Shelo asanu who didn't make us like the nations of the earth, velo samanu adama, and did not make us like the, the families of the of the of the earth. Right? There's a repetition. Right? That is a sign of biblical poetry. Not all, but many of the Psalms are written like that. I said, I look at the Ashray. If you look at the Ashray closely, it has two, two clauses and they are either, they're either structured where one sort of reinforces and repeats, one extends the concept. Sometimes they were even what they call antithetical, uh, para, it's called parallelism. You may have heard that word. Parallelism. So there are elements, not every line here, but many of the lines, if you stop and look at it, here, the next thing, the next two lines, right? 
for all, um, um, yeah, so that all you have fashioned revere you and all you have created bow in recognition. Same thing. You see that? Parallelism. That's a sign of poetry. But there's something else that's poetic here, and that's a resp- repetition of sounds. Okay? The, the poets, the, the, this is something you find all over the place. Sometimes it's good for memorization, but sometimes it's a poetic um, expression. So listen to the Hebrew here. Excuse me. See that word, those two letters, kaf lamed, all, are mentioned repeatedly over and over and over again. Okay, now you could make the same point, but again, it's emphasis. Sure, the emphasis here, repetition for emphasis, but this is a type of a thing that that uh, a type of a, a use of the language that suggests um, poetic repetition. But and, and I will show you in the second paragraph an even more obvious one, which actually has to do with rhyming. Okay. But there's another element here that's interesting. If you look, uh, the first line talks about kolma asecha, all the things you made, and your fear al kolma shebarata, all that you created. Then it says, and the the all that you have made will uh, revere you, vishtachan, and all those that you have created bow down. Okay, so you have asa, bara, asa, bara, right? A, B, A, B. Now, sometimes some of you know I'm crazy for, for, uh, whatchamacallit, um, chiasms, right? Which is a different thing, a different time of structure. But this type of, this is poetic stuff. This is poetic stuff, okay? But here's the interesting thing, this whole notion that in the fifth line, that they they are all going to be bound together, carrying out your will wholeheartedly. Bound together. Okay. Now, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And how does that actually fit in with with what we are about as a people, with, with our with our our concepts of how the world supposed to operate? What is it saying? And where might that idea come from? First of all, what does it say? Is it is it like the opposite of the Tower of Babel? In a sense, right. In other words, um, or a return. Yeah, right. But wait, but God wanted the people to spread out and be different, right? The people wanted that, right? That was their sin. <laughs> the, the reason why God got angry was because they did not want to disperse themselves, but God bar- garbled garbled the language that forced them not to be able to talk to one another. And out of that, different nations were created. So that's the explanation of diversity. This sounds again. Is this like, is this like Sinai where we took on the yoke together, all of us? We did as a people, the Jews. But this is talking now about all humankind. Ah. All creation. Let's talk about people only for now. 
all humankind. So are we talking about the homogenizing of religion? It, it, it seems to me that, um, that God wants everybody to realize he is responsible for everything. Yeah. And, and that therefore, we have to understand that we're not the same and that we have to bow down to him. We, we're, we're subservient to, to God. We're expecting that of all people. Yes. Okay. Now, the question is, I mean, yeah, yes, but does that mean that they then give, are are they all becoming Jews? Not necessarily. This was written during a time where there were lots of other people there. Right. No, I think, I think you're right. I don't, I think there's a subtle thing here. This is a kind of an idealistic notion that the basic principle of one God will be accepted. Inherent within it is the notion, I think, that there may be different expressions of that. But clearly, this is supposed to replace idolatry, paganism. You have to understand that the 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 ancient traditions of Judaism, and this continues up till the tolerance, the, the tolerance within Jewish tradition does real at the tolerance of religion okay tolerance of our other religion really doesn't manifest itself clearly until the middle ages when you begin to have certain people of the tosophistic school in france and a man like menachem in southern france who realized the fact that christians and then maimonides also before that a little bit in a it's different way and Maimonides says that Christians and Muslims don't always get it right, but they, they are preaching the concept of monotheism. Mm-hmm. Muslims more are closer to it than the Christians, because he doesn't like at all the concept of the deification of Jesus, nor does Muhammad. Okay. But the fact is, Islam is a very monotheistic, very purely monotheistic. Okay. And Rambam recognized that. Mistaken, but... Well, Menachem HaMeiri, who was a disciple of his, not alive, he didn't study with him, but he read all his, he was influenced by Maimonidean thinking. He says that Christianity and Islam are nations that are bound by the, by religious principles, by valid religious principles. Now, it wasn't a very popular thing at that time, but eventually it caught hold. Okay. And the fact that we today, you know, engage in uh, interreligious dialogue, right? We they, we say you guys are different. God bless. We are different. God bless. But we all have something in common, right? We all have a faith in in a single God. Okay, so that notion doesn't necessarily negate different expressions of it. I think what our, the tradition teaches is the principle of monotheism. At what point, if ever, did this extend to Buddhism and Hinduism and the non-Abrahamic religions? Right. Uh, they didn't know much about that, right? They didn't know much about those things. Um, I would say, my, my understanding is Buddhism, maybe certain iterations of Buddhism sort of come close to this, and one could make a case. I don't know about Hinduism, though. Uh, to me, that sounds like it's... I mean, I'm not an expert on on, on religions, so I'll comment. 
there was a rabbi who was a teacher at Shalhevet quite a few years ago when my children were students there, who had tra- traveled extensively in India before he came to Los Angeles and had testified before the chief rabbinate in Israel that, about Hinduism and had helped to secure the idea that Hindus are not um, pagans and therefore hair of Hindus can be used in shaitlich that Jewish women wear. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So there's an answer. Yeah, I'm sure. You see, if you, look, uh, the rabbis have a very, it's, it's very clear. When they want to find something that is meaningful in a new way, they can do that. Right? People think that's what conservative rabbis do all the time. <laughs> I would argue that the ancients did the same thing. So I've heard the expression, if there's a rabbinic will, there's a rabbinic way. Yes. In many ways, it's true. Okay. Not, not, not all the time, but in many ways. So anyway, so I think that's what this is talking about. But the point, it's interesting though. Do you know where that concept is first mentioned? I'm not expecting you to, but when I read it to you, you may be familiar. I'm going to, I'm going to read you the passage. Let's see if you remember where this comes from. Well, it's going to be quite clear. Here you go. All right. This is from the Bible. All right. Okay. All who survive all those nations of all those nations that came up against Jerusalem shall make a privilege year by year to bow low to the king Adonai of hosts to observe the feast of Sukkot. Any of the earth's communities that does not make the privilege, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to bow low to king Lord of hosts shall receive no rain. That, my friends, is the Haftarah from, it's the Zechariah chapter 14, which if I'm not mistaken is the Haftarah for the last day of Sukkot. And that is based upon, that is the Bible, the Holy Bible. That prophet says, everybody's going to come to you. They're, they're obligated to come to Sukkot. You know, uh, that's the, that's by the way, the reason why the rabbis tell us, no, the, you know, the Torah tells us how many oxen were sacrificed over the course of the week of Shavuot in the temple. Anybody know the number? 70. Now you can say, oh, that's the number of the Sanhedrin. Yeah, no. But it reflects the 70 nations. 70 nations. The rabbis understand that there are 70 nations. So that, so the, the, that's, I'm sure they drew that out of Zechariah's, um, uh, you know, interpretation. So the point is you have that notion there then that at a certain point in time, all the nations will indeed, this is biblical. Now, Grant, it's not a major thrust of, of, of all biblical prophecy. Isaiah in chapter 11 is basically talking about what's happening in Eretz Israel, but he does say, however, that the nations of the world will come to the King Messiah to gain wisdom and learning. Okay. So there is a sense of nations coming 
to learn with the Mashiach. Okay. So Isn't I mean, there something hmm? also about all the nations gathering at the holy mountain? Yeah. Well, that's 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 part of the uh, Zechariah. Yeah. Oh. I know what you're saying. That's somewhere else. You're right. You're right. Um, but I can't remember where it is right now. Yes, yes, yes. Or, or is that the, 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 uh, the, I thought it was Isaiah, but I may be wrong. It is, but I'm not sure if that's the nations or is it that, uh, both Ephraim and Yehuda will come together, the unification of the two elements of the Jewish people. It may be. See if you can look it up, right? You know, not now. Okay. Okay, but if you can find it, yeah, that's not hard to find. I'll check. I'll see if I can find it too. Right, anyway, so that's the, but you see the thing ends. We already know that paragraph ends, right? We know that sovereignty is yours, right? But in the end, your name will be revered beyond any of your creation, right? That, that's it. All right. Now, the next one. Here we find another very interesting. Let's look at a poetic element here. All right, now look at the, you gotta look at the Hebrew, and I'm gonna just mention that this is now rhyming, okay? Rhyming, okay? Okay. You got echas, seven echas there. <laughs> echa, echa, echa. If you can't pronounce it, you're in trouble. Okay. A lot of people can't go the ch. All right. Anyway. So, but that, that's, that, again, it's poetry. All right. Now, however, what's interesting is the, the, um, the, the, the movement here now of terms. Okay. It, here you don't have, this is not like the repetition that you find in, in later poetry, uh, which is influenced by Kabbal, not Kabbalistic, by early mystical thinking. But there's a movement here, right? There's a certain element of repetition, but it's not the same. So listen, you have in the first line, Uvachin Tain Kavod, right? Bring honor to your people. Praise to those who revere you. Okay. So that's that. Two clauses. Then it says, look, hope to those who seek you. And it says, pitchon peh to those who await you. Pitchon peh means, really, it can mean a pretext or eloquence. I think what it means here is a reason, hope, it, it picks up on the hope, a reason for people to, to, to publicly state that they await God. It, it has to do with the hope. That opens up their minds. But then it says, joy to the land, gladness to your city. You see that? Joy to the land, gladness to your city. And then the light of David, your servant, Don, the lamp of the son of Jesse. So there you see once again. So your movie, look at the movement here, though. The people, the land, the city, and ultimately David. Got it? The people, the land, the city, David going. Now, the people here, of course, is the people of Israel. But you go from. And the lamp. And the lamp. What? And the lamp. 
Well, the lamp, but the lamp is the light of David, right? right. Ah, well, that's like in the temple, sort of, maybe. It doesn't, but it says, Arichat Ner, yeah, perhaps, right? Maybe an allusion to the temple, but it's also the, the, the light of David, uh, Karen, it's probably Karen Orr here, okay? Uh, and the, um, so the point here is though, it goes from the larger down to the smaller. Again, a, a kind of a poetic movement, but it's a progression. It's not simply a repetition. There's a progression here. Okay. Now clear, it's clearly stated. David Abdecha, David, your servant, Ben Yishai Mechichecha, right? The son of Jesse, your, your Messiah, your, your anointed one. Okay. Smichat Karen, the, the bursting forth of the light and Arichat Ner and the long, the, the length of the lights burning. Okay, it's almost like a Ner Tamid. It's almost like a Ner Tamid of the Davidic kingdom. And that's what it's supposed to be, right? Okay, so and this is the focus on the people. Okay, now finally, the last of the three paragraphs, the first part of it. So now again, we're going to talk about the, it begins with the reference to the righteous, right? And it's again, it's interesting. It's referring to righteous people, righteous individuals, or a group of righteous people, and then the abstract evil that it will replace. So this is really it's it's interesting because it's not it could have been more violent, right? If you if you read the reference to something like this, which we I alluded to earlier uh, in the um, in the week that I made, that talks about the bad guys. It talks about different categories of evil people. Here it's not. It's the it's the it's the dark force, right? It's the evil empire. Okay, that's what it is. So again, Sadikim rejoice. Righteous Yesharim, same thing. It's people who walk the straight path. Rejoice. Hasidim, the zealot believer, the zealous believer in God, sings with with and rejoice. Okay. So those are the, you think, then the terms, repetition, but here it is for emphasis. Then olatav, really interesting. Olatav, which is avel, the same term, evil. Risha, evil. Memshelat Zadon, the kingdom of evil, the dark, the evil empire, right? They will pass away. The evil will, its mouth will shut up. <coughs> the, the evil, evil will uh, go away like smoke. And you will cause the evil empire to be removed from the land. Okay. All right. Then finally, and because you will, you will, uh, rule Timloch Ata Adonai Now we're going to focus specifically on the concept of God's kingship. And that's the reason this is the whole, this whole conclusion here, the lead up to this. Ultimately, if you take all of these things, which you now see are very, they're, they're a universal, um, they are sprinkled universally throughout the liturgy of our people, throughout our thinking. This is an embodiment of a basic structure of, of, um, of faith of the Jewish people. I mean, that's, that's the power of this. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that this, that, that this captured the imagination of the authorities who stuck it into this prayer within the prayer itself, a piyut inside the prayer, not an additional piece outside the prayer, okay? 
So God will rule by himself on Har Zion in Jerusalem, right? And again, you, there, there's a revert, reverting back to the universal element. Once again, you will rule over all the things that you have made. It recaptures the universality of the beginning, right? Then it refers to Zion and Jerusalem. And finally, the last verse, which comes from the Psalms, I'll stick to my day job. I will not become a chazan. Don't worry. But now the final passage. And this is really, really interesting. Normally at this point, you would say something like the door by door nagid gad lechal and netzach netzachin, right? You will, from every generation, we cause your, we praise your greatness and your holiness. Naritzcha, but no, that's the ending. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Uh, and, or there are other passages that we use at this point at the end of this blessing. Here it says, kadosh ata benorashmecha ve'en eloah mibaladecha. You are holy, and your name is awesome, and there's no God other than you. That's the line. This is the interesting thing. At least I'm interested in it. That line comes from the Eretz Yisrael version of that blessing every day of the year. Okay? The Babylonian tradition, which ultimately, this is all ultimately the product of Babel. Because remember, from the third, fourth century of the common era on, slowly, 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 the Babylonian traditions overwhelm the Palestinian ones. And that happens throughout the early Middle Ages. But we know from the manuscripts of the earliest Amidah that come out of Eretz Yisrael that have only 18 blessings, not 19, 18 blessings, the Kedusha concludes with that line, Kadosha And here, the Babylonian tradition and the subsequent universal Jewish tradition, this line is found in all the different texts of the Sidur. Okay? That line is chosen probably because of the term, this notion of Nora, and of the absolute statement of the, the, what, the uniqueness of God. Okay? The uniqueness of God. It's, it's here. And people often argue, you know, well, you really can't change the third blessing, those first three blessings. I got a lot of this when I introduced the Imahot into the first bracha. I think I've dealt with that issue. But the people said that it says, blah, 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 you're not supposed to change these things. My friends, here is an example of a change, a major one. Okay. And take but I think it, the whole point is this notion of Nora picks up where the thing, where, where this whole thing begins. Okay. The beginning of the poem. Now, this is not, again, this is not part of the poem. This is not part of the poem, but it says, first of all, Kadosh, which of course we want to have because this is Kadusha, holy, but Nora, awesome. If you will go back to the end of the first part of Uvachain, the Nora Shimcha Nora al Komasha Barata. 
right? right? Your name is awesome over everything that you created. So it, this line actually picks up a, an important principle from the poem, weaves it in here in the conclusion, or it's used because it has this, okay? And there's only one God. Then this addition, and this is put in, we don't know by whom, but it, you, you, when I read it, it'll be very clear, right? Kakatuv, and this is from Isaiah 5.16. I mentioned it, referred this before, right? God will be exalted through judgment. And the sacred God will be sanctified through righteousness. Praise be God, who is the holy king. King. Joel, righteousness on the part of God or righteousness on the part of the people? Uh, uh, it's very good. It could be both. In other words, God acts with righteousness, but God's, um, will be sanctified through the righteousness of the people. Because remember, um, we say, we will sanctify your name, right? That's the unique thing of the, of the Kedusha here, of this Kedusha, right? We will sanctify you. So it could be one or the other, but it's a good observation. Okay. All right. It is now 835. Um, I'm done. Anybody have any final comments or observations? It's amazing, isn't it? All the stuff that's packed into these paragraphs. Um, but I think the, the, the centrality of all the ideas here not only lends itself to the high holidays, but it also, in, it, it encapsulates so much of what the general liturgy proclaims, um, that it's almost as if saying, okay, folks, we say this all the time, but now's the time to really focus. Uh, get these ideas right in front of us because these are critical for the experience that we're going to have over the course of the next 10 days. Okay. And reminds us that these are the ideas that we have to keep in front of us. By the way, you know, you'll notice here talks about evil, right? Talks about righteous people. Yes. God's righteousness and so forth. But nowhere does it talk about repentance, right? It does not. It's not, does not. It's dealing with the broader principles here. It's like laying a an ideological foundation uh, and part of this process, the way we buy into this pro what will unfold now over the course of the rest of the liturgy is and we'll we'll see this, of course, is this whole notion of our we recognize our sinfulness, we want to change, we are encouraged to change. God, you want us to change. You will accept us if we change. You are our judge, but you're also our compassionate parent, right? All these themes ultimately flow, I would say, flow out of this foundation. And and ultimately, the hopeful end, that's the beautiful thing here. It's got this, the common denominator of all three sections deals with a point in time when all of these things will be in operation. 
and the perfection of the world that we all pray for will come to be. So in a sense, it it, it opens up the prayers with a a, a kind of a, a messianic, futuristic, hopeful fervor. Okay, so all of these reasons, I must say, uh, when I say this again, every time, twice each Amida, quietly, and then during the course of the repetition, I'll hear it said, uh, it's going to have a different impact on me because I, you know, finally come to an understanding of this. And uh, as as students in this class to whom I am responsible, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity for exploring this and having you join me in it. Next time, we will start looking at some of the more obvious piyutim that are not, that are added into the liturgy, not part of the basic structure of it. We will deal with, um, second, and these are, these are ones that one of them pops up all the time. Misod chachamim nevonim, right? That line that we say after the first paragraph of the first blessing of the Amidah that the cantor says, really. We don't say this when we say this. The cantor says this, right? And then the next one, we're going to look at um, that whole poetic acrostic uh, that comes from a later point in the... Uh, in the in the uh, service, uh, but it's it's something that we it, it it encapsulates a lot of the basic themes of the high holidays. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.